0: Hello, friends. We're back with episode 151 of the R Weekly Highlights Podcast. If you are new to the show, this is where we talk about the latest issue of R Weekly that you can find at rweekly.org and, in particular, the highlights that have been selected by our curation team, along with our usual uh, banter and rambles along the way. My name is Eric Nance, and I'm delighted you join us from wherever you are around the world. And as always, joining me right at the virtual hip here is my co host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing this
1: morning? Doing well, Eric. It's pretty crazy that we've surpassed 150 uh, recordings now uh, of our weekly highlights. And um, I guess, what's the next milestone? 200 to look forward to?
0: That's right. The big 200. And um, yeah, I know a lot of the podcasts I've listened to, they'll either do a fun little retrospective-y thing or they just might act like everything's business as usual. So we'll see what happens when we get there, but it should be fun one way or another. And this week's issue, speaking of fun, is from our longtime curator on the team, Rio Nakakawara. still have very fond memories of meeting him in IRL at one of the uh, RStudio conferences long ago. That was a fun time, but I hope I get to meet up with him again someday. But as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow Rwiki team members and contributors like all of you around the world with your pull requests and other awesome recommendations. Well, Mike, you and I are both, at one point, one way or another, in our various projects or consultations, we do have to do a little guidance or teaching along the way on various concepts. Um, for me, I've definitely been doing a bit of that with, you know, helping with a little bit of inside our training at my organization, getting some analysts lined up with the latest and greatest resources that we have in our ecosystem. Well, our first highlight is doing just that, but it's a great perspective because anytime that i've done whether it's a tutorial a forum meetup or a mini workshop it's not just i'm trying to help the the learners if you will you know learn a new concept i often learn just as much as they do especially from that perspective or persona of somebody maybe new to those frameworks or new to the the language itself and our first highlight today comes from athanasia moenkel who is a cognitive neuroscientist and now a great art developer who recently gave a fantastic talk, by the way, at POSICONF this past year on using R-Universe for her um, package development. So really recommend that talk if you haven't seen it. Well, on her latest blog post, she talks about some of the learnings she's had while she was helping others learn at a recent digital scholarship days at her uh, University of Oslo. And in particular, she talked about um, her findings from two workshops that she gave. One was called Kortaki, cool name, and that's an introduction to Quarto. Um, we've actually been talking about Quarto quite a bit in our off recording here, so that's timely. As well as our project management, another area that we're going to be touching on a little bit later in the show, actually. So, in particular, in these two workshops, she had a few interesting findings that probably have been count- you have encountered before in one way or another. But one of them is definitely pretty esoteric that... Has happened to me uh, many times before. And we'll start with Quarto here. Because if you're familiar with creating slides in Quarto or frankly, even R Markdown before that, a lot of the organization of slides is governed by the use of headings, like the, R, the Markdown syntax headings. In particular, having a single heading is going to give you one of those kind of title like slides with the big text in the middle. And then when you do a two-level heading, i.e. with the two hashtags, that's when you typically denote a new slide with content underneath. Well, what was interesting in the workshop prep that she did for this quarter workshop is that she noticed that there was a slide that had some nice content and then suddenly the huge text in the middle superimposed on top, which I have had mishaps of in the past with in back when before I adopted quartal um, and i remember i was getting bewildered by just what exactly is going on here well apparently one of the learners picked up about this is that if you do a single heading but then do another heading that's three or more hashes in front it's not going to do a new slide after that first level heading it's just simply going to superimpose that big text on top of the context that was under that three or say four level heading like in her example so the switch was to force a new slide that doesn't have say a typical two level markdown heading there is the three dashes syntax and this works for both Quarto and i believe for Sharingan as well where then you force it to create a new slide now that's something that you kind of learn from experience typically we don't have to use that but i have used that sparingly in the past and it's a good mental note to me in future self that i can use that same syntax of okay i can force a new slide with that nomenclature or that uh three dashes instead of having the mishap that we saw in her presentation slides but the good news is once you make the fix it's all in version control right just Fix that, commit it, push it, and recompile your slides. So, all is well that ends well, as they say. Um, but speaking of Quartal, another interesting nuance is the idea of how things are actually named between HTML and some of the interfaces we use to build the slides. In particular, if you're familiar with web development, you've probably heard about something called a horizontal rule, which is literally the HR tag in HTML, which gives you that nice horizontal straight line. that can use a separate or partition content, if you will. Well, she asked her learners to add that in her portal slides, right? And then some are using the RStudio IDE with the, um, you know, the insert field and the Markdown Editor, the Visual Editor. Others are using the nice command palette, which has a slash shortcut to start adding in commands. And you notice there's a discrepancy between the two, is that in the Visual Editor, the insert calls it, horizontal rule but then the command palette version it's called horizontal line and yeah this may seem trivial but it can trip up people sometimes like well that what, what did she ask me to put in why is it called different and sure enough you know she put an issue on the quarter issue tracker with this difference and sure enough the positive team has fixed this so now it's consistently called horizontal line in the ide now so good catch um but again one of those things that you don't really notice until you put this in front of people so that was that was an interesting find on the portal
1: side of things yeah i think it's interesting that they called it that they i guess our studio or, or posit decided to go with horizontal line instead of horizontal rule which is sort of from a development perspective and especially web development what it's what it's always been called
0: Now, the next sections of her blog post definitely hit home with certain things I've dealt with, and that's dealing with the constraints that sometimes IT will bring upon you, and that is in particular one of my biggest bugaboos is spaces and file names or directory names. I have never had good luck with that, and apparently some of the learners got tripped up with some of this too in respect to some of the materials that she had put together for the project management piece. And again, sometimes you can't control what you can't control, right? But she has um, been in contact with IT about how can we make sure that these directory names at least have a little more structure around them or these file names have a little more structure about them to try and have the best of both worlds. Those that are doing more programming, dealing with the file systems that are being created and those that are simply just trying to get their work done. So it can be a thorny issue. I do admit, every time I tell people how to interact, you know, nicely with our Posit workbench internally or over our HPC systems internally, I am always that annoying person that says, "No spaces, only underscores and dashes in your file name, directory names." You'll thank me later, and usually they do, actually. So, <laughs> but that that can trip people up as well. So, I felt I felt seen on that one. And this this next one is really hitting home is that. You know as installations of say r itself you know accumulate over time you got multiple r versions which might mean that you've messed around with settings on some of the versions maybe not maybe you've interacted with those site configuration files which are basically the installation level r profile or R environ files maybe your it group or whoever admins have done some tricky things with library pass well guess what that might What she discovered is that there's some of their shared, you know, project areas. They had five library paths at various levels in the stack. And some of them were just completely empty. So sure enough, a lot of cruft can happen. She has a fun little Gigi plot of the different R versions that they have available and how many libraries are installed inside of them. So that, again, these things happen over time. I'm privileged because our Linux team, which is top-notch at my org, has a system in place where we can load a specific R version as needed with what's called the module command in Linux. So we can quickly say if we want to use R422 or go back to R363 for like a, you know, esoteric reason, we have all that segregated away. Yeah. Not everybody's that lucky. So I can definitely sympathize with the wild west of where packages are installed. Um, so that was an interesting finding that she had with respect to her um, organization. So all in all, really entertaining blog post, And again, just shows you that it's not just the learners benefiting from the, the workshop. Us on the other side of it, on the other side of the fence, so to speak. We we learn just as much. So. Terrific blog post by Athanasia, and we really, um, again, I highly recommend her previous talks as well. Really
1: entertaining stuff. Yeah, it it seems like all the content that Athanasia is is putting together lately is is really awesome. I really enjoy uh, following her work, and I couldn't agree more with sort of the overall sentiment of this blog post that sometimes you learn... More when you teach than uh, what you might expect, uh, you know, because it's it's one of the best debugging exercises, as she puts it, um, that you can possibly do is to actually go out and and teach something and, and say it out loud. It's it's somewhat like talking to the little rubber ducky, right? That uh, says developers say that you should have uh, on your desk. So it's it's great feedback. It's a great exercise in order to sort of troubleshoot. Um, your understanding and, and really solidify sort of what you what you thought you knew, and then figure out uh, where the gaps exist when you actually go to teach that to other folks. So that that's a really interesting reflection that resonated a lot with me, um, as well as the the Quarto stuff and, and project management. You know, I think we've absolutely all been there, been there uh, with multiple versions of R on shared file systems and and trying to collaborate sort of before the world of RN, Vinposit Package Manager, and uh, now Docker, which is very relevant to me because we have a, a new open source package, and I am trying to figure out what is the earliest version of R that our package will successfully install with. Um, we went back to, to 3.5 and realized that it, it breaks there because some dependencies, I think tidyr being one of them, rely on R3.6 or greater. So uh, instead of having to install all of those different versions of R on my computer, I'm able to just change the change the base image and, and spin up a Docker container and and run the installation and see if it succeeds or, or if it fails of our package, which is is pretty cool. I think just overall, we have a lot more tooling now around R version management and dependency management than we used to have. Uh, but but I certainly remember the heydays of logging on to sort of a shared network and and seeing a million different versions of of R, a million different library paths, as as she notes that they had five different R library paths at at various levels um, across many different versions of of R. So that was was, uh, sort of nostalgic to see (laughs) for me. Uh, But a great write-up, lots to learn from here, and thanks to Athanasia for this blog post.
0: Yeah, and we're going to have direct links to each of the workshops that you gave in the show notes because the material freely available, terrific slides, terrific, um, you know, hands on work in those in those workshops. So again, if you're in the space of kind of beginning your educational journey, if you will, with your respective organization on these concepts, yeah, this is some great, great material to draw upon. Those are just talking about that mike one of the um features in um in the previous uh, highlight workshop that about project management was leveraging the rm package for managing your r dependencies in a given project and i have used rm quite a bit as the foundation for my reproducibility layers at the day job even for my open source projects and yes some very important collaborations with a certain government agency and submission pilots But like anything in life, nothing is perfect. right? And there are going to be some snags you encounter along the way, some of which may not be inflicted by RM directly, but things that a new user might encounter in their various setups. And our next blog post for our second highlight today comes from Hugo Grunson, who is a data engineer with the Data.org organization and part of the Epiverse project, which has been featured in Highlights in the past. And his blog post is talking about some of the things that can go a little wrong when you use RM. So I'm going to run through some of the issues that that Hugo highlights, and then Mike, I'll turn it over to you for some of the solutions that he talks about. But the first issue, and as a Linux user, oh boy, do I know about this, is the issue of binary package installations versus compiling from source. So, yes, if you are on those operating systems and you want to use a current version of a package, there's usually no problem installing the binary versions. What happens though is that you might need an older version of a package. And in that case, CRAN is not going to have binary versions of older package sources available. You are now into the compiling from source world that actually is the default world for most of the Linux usage of R itself. And that's where you want to pay attention to maybe the packages description file and see if they call out any system requirements because for certain packages there are going to be system requirements to be able to compile from source typically these are like um, c-level libraries other utilities that you might get in your package manager for instance but that's going to trip up Renv especially because it might be trying to install an older version of a package from cran and then you're into some issues trying to figure out okay what what, what other system library do i need now there are some tools in the ecosystem to help with finding this um, i know there's some packages out i believe by posits team on help to you know identify package dependency from a system level A lot of times you'll end up Googling it anyway, and then you'll figure out the package name that you might need if you're on an Ubuntu system or a Red Hat system or a Mac OS, what kind of library you might need for that. And apparently there are some gotchas in addition for those on Apple Silicon, i.e. the M1 chips with binary, I should say, with source package installation. So there's a, a good note, especially around G Fortran for that. So my sympathies for anybody that's encountering that issue, because that must be thorny to troubleshoot if you don't know what you're looking for. So I know this from experience because when, you know, we mentioned Michael, Mike, just now that with Docker environments, guess what? That's Linux. So you're going to have to put in those system dependencies before you start installing those packages. And that, if you don't know what you're looking for, that can be tricky. Unless you use R2U. (laughs) There you go. Plug right one. So they're trying to simplify this if you're in the container world, but if you don't know, you don't know. And now you do. Well, there are other issues to deal with as well in this space is that maybe you've done the homework maybe you've got that system dependency already installed but how long ago did you install that and did a recent package that ended up having to be compiled from source utilize a newer version of that same library that's the example that's in hugo's post here is that for example the matrix stats package had a compilation error from those trying to install one from a version from 2021 about a double max double x max undeclared variable and sure enough there was an explanation for this in the read me, release notes of matrix stats that mentioned that they were moving to a different construct for this constant dbl max instead of a legacy one called double x max and there you go. That could trip you up too, because you real you think, hey, I, I done I done what I needed to do. I got that system library in there, but sometimes you have to keep those up to date as well. So lots of little gotchas, and you may be wondering, oh my goodness, I'm going to be in this. How the heck do I navigate this? And that's where the next part of the post talks about some potential solutions in this space.
1: Yeah. So as you noted, you know, Cran will only provide binaries. I think for the most recent. Versions of the R packages that are available on CRAN. However, Posit Package Manager uh, provides a, a larger collection of binaries uh, for different package versions historically across different platforms as well via you know, the public Posit Package Manager, which is awesome. So for, for those using R N, by default it may try to install the packages in your renv.lock file from CRAN my recommendation is to switch that over to to Posit package manager as quickly as possible. I think you'll find the installation experience uh, not only less prone to running into errors with some of those system dependencies, but also faster um, if you're installing binaries as opposed to from source. So that would be recommendation number one. And that's that's the first sort of solution um, that's that's posited here. No pun intended. And then they talk about extending the scope of reproducibility and introducing the RIG package, which is honestly a package that I have not used enough, but absolutely should. And RIG is a package, uh, an R package within the R lib uh, ecosystem and it allows you to sort of go back and forth between different versions of R. I believe you can run code against multiple versions of R at the same time. There's some pretty, pretty wild things that you can do with Rig that I think help uh, solve some of these issues that you may run into uh, working with different versions of packages across different versions of R. So I think Rig can be a really helpful tool for, for troubleshooting uh, or doing some of that exploratory work to make sure that your environment is set up Correctly and appropriately in a way that's that's not going to fail, and then obviously you know these we've talked about at, at length, uh, even discussed already in the highlights. But there's there's Docker, there's Nix. Shout out Bruno Rodriguez. Uh, he has a, a series of blog posts on Nix, which are linked within this this blog. So hopefully he's he's super stoked to to see uh, Nix being represented here again with all of the fantastic resources that he's put together there. Uh, there's a link to using RN with with Docker, the, the RN vignette that's that's within the RN, I believe, package down site, as well as a link to a paper uh, that's an introduction to Rocker, which is one of the most popular images out there for working with R, and that paper is authored uh, by none other than the, the creator of R2U himself, Dirk Edelbutel, who I was talking about, as well as Car- Carl uh, Bodiger. So that might be a paper that you may be interested in, in checking out that was published in 2017 in the R Journal. But some just fantastic resources here um, that allow you to explore some of the different potential solutions for for handling these issues that you might be coming ac- coming into when you are uh, trying to to work on a new project with potentially an older version of R or older version of, of R packages and sort of the the final note here and to summarize this blog post in its entirety and Eric, I think you can can share this sentiment. I don't think that package management is a solved problem quite yet at this point or environment management. So I think this, there are a lot of similar sentiments in the Python ecosystem as well. There's, there's pyenv, there's, there's venv, there's pipenv, um, a lot of different ways to go about trying to do it. And I don't know if any of them are perfect. And an renv is obviously, you know, in my opinion, at least, you know, the, the, the most uh, recent and sort of, uh, you know, best attempt at package management thus far in the R ecosystem. I think it, it, uh, improves upon some of the things that Packrat, the previous package management uh, package, uh, tried to handle. I know that there is the Pack. PAK package as well, which does allow you to create sort of a, a lock file as well and, and manage uh, some of these things. But again, I, I don't think it's a, a perfectly solved problem yet. And maybe it never will be. You know, it's a, a very tricky thing to manage. But I think uh, in terms of some of those issues that you may run into when using RM, this blog post is a great resource on some of the ways that you can try to troubleshoot those issues.
0: Yeah, I echo a lot of those same thoughts, Mike, and it does take me to even just at a broader level, the issue of distributing software, even just on Linux in general, because there are a lot of issues that are very common here with what's happening in the R ecosystem of packages and the Python ecosystem of package dependencies. There have been some new standards in place to help give developers kind of a single quote unquote single target so that those on any Linux distribution, no matter what, can install these system, these uh, software utilities. I'm thinking of Flatpak is one that's gotten the most attention with snaps probably close behind that. In R, you're right. There's a lot of different ways to tackle this, and it, I don't think there is a perfect one in place. I do think what needs to happen, though, and I think this blog post is a great kind of precursor to it, is that these different paths of reproducibility that you want to take, whether it's the full system reproducibility talking to the full stack if you will or if it's just the package dependencies just that perspective those personas can mean different things into how far you go with these solutions so certainly what i'm keeping an eye on is yes i do often integrate rm with containers but not rm out of the box i am going to configure a little bit to my liking to make sure that it plays nicely, like you said, with the Posit Package Manager, a huge win for container development and package um, environments. Um, but also, again, you shouted him out. Bruno is on uh, such a role here with spreading the message of, of Nix, in particular, the Rix package that he is co developing. Nix is taking a lot of, a, you know, I would say, mind share in the general software development communities. Certainly, it's a huge topic of the podcast I listen to. And I think with time, we're going to start seeing some, you know, enhancements to what Bruno is working on with Rick's, but also maybe others sharing their thoughts on it. I know quite a few people in the community are starting to dip their toes in it, myself included. Still got a ways to go. But anything that can simplify that full stack with or without containers, I think is going to come up kind of above the surface, if you will, is as teams and organizations figure out the best way to tackle this. But there was a, a nugget in the, in the conclusion here I wanna emphasize here, is that when you have multiple team or multiple members involved on a team for a reproducibility kind of project, there needs to be a real team effort to keep up to date with everything. And I still recommend that if there's like a, even a two person or more team, that one person, is kind of in charge of kind of handling the RM side of things if you're doing RM for your package management because, trust me, there'd be dragons when you have multiple people clobbering that RM block file in a GitHub repo and not knowing which one is which, which change should I pull into, so... <laughs> You're smiling. I know you know what I'm talking about, Mike. We've been there and it is rough when you don't have that delineation set up front. (laughs) I think there
1: are a ton of organizations out there that struggle with this. We do a lot of work around this to try to set up um, data science teams and data science collaborative workflows within some of our clients organizations that we work with. And you know like you said, it's, a, it's an evolving, not perfectly solved problem, but you have to, you have to implement a framework and you have to set some sort of controls around how you're going to at least try to employ some of these best practices for collaboration uh, between team members across projects. Otherwise, you'll just be in a world of pain.
0: Yeah. And you know, data science is hard enough, folks. We don't need more pain alongside our data science adventures. So yeah, certainly if you've had your share of you know, successes, or frankly, maybe even not so great moments with package and environment reproducibility, we'd love to hear about it. We'll tell you how to get in touch with us later in the show. And rounding out our highlights today, something that's right up both of our wheelhouses lately in different ways. But, um, you know, we've been pretty uh, vocal on this podcast and some of our other adventures about it's a, it's a new era in terms of data storage formats. Whether we're talking about databases traditionally or some of these newer methods. And in particular, a format that we are very excited about is the Parquet format part of the uh, you know, Apache Arrow project. There are lots of interesting ways that you can leverage this technology to streamline your data storage needs. And um, yeah, my co-host here, Mike, yeah, you know a thing or two about this, but uh, this, this last highlight is coming from Colin Gillespie, who is um, the CTO of Jumping Rivers, who have been big proponents of advancing computing in their data science consulting projects and blogging for all of us to, to learn about. And this is part of a series of posts that are diving deep into Apache Arrow in respect to the R ecosystem. And in this blog post here, Colin talks about some of the benefits that you can see in Parquet versus what is the traditional format that we've been using in the R ecosystem since, frankly, the beginning of the language,
1: and that's called the RDS format. Absolutely. And you know that I am a huge fan of the Parquet format and sort of all the advances that have come within uh, data storage in the last, I don't even know how long it's been, 12, 18 months between Parquet, DuckDB, all those things. It's its happened very, very quickly. And Colin leverages uh, one of the most popular, I think, built-in data sets, uh, I believe, within the arrow r package which allows you to easily work with uh, the parquet format files and query them using dplyr syntax which we we know and love and that that data set is called the nyc uh, data and i believe that's that's on new york city taxi data which is a pretty pretty large data set so makes for a good example when wrangling and querying this large parquet file and so one of the you know big comparisons here between Parquet is RDS files, as you talked about, Eric, which is a file format that us as R users have been using, I think, for as long as R has been around or as long as I can remember, at least for essentially saving any type of object, right? It could be a data frame, could be a list, could be a model often. So it's a very flexible uh, file storage format. And, you know, to date, when we typically compared, you know, RDS storage to like a CSV, especially if you are uh, storing a data frame and most of the time that RDS file was going to be smaller and snappier to load. Than a c really having to read a CSV file, but now that we have this new file storage format called Parquet, which is columnar storage, um, we've sort of gone through that comparison again. and This time, comparing RDS to, to Parquet file format, and that's what Collins' blog post is doing here. And I think you'll be you'll be fairly surprised at the results in taking a look at at least this example New York City taxi data set appears to outperform uh, the parquet version appears to outperform the rds version of this file across a few different metrics so i don't know if you want to dive into uh, i can do the drum roll and you can dive into the results here for us eric
0: all right here we go folks yes and um, the results are in and one thing to note with the parquet format and how the arrow package writes the parquet is it's taking advantage of a compression utility called Snappy, which is a fun little name right there. But that alone is a huge gain in terms of writing this taxi data set to disk. And in particular, in the average of the metrics that the Collins put together here, it takes on average about four seconds to write to parquet format of this taxi data set. Whereas for using the GZIP compression library in RDS, takes 27 seconds on average to write that to disk now that is some massive savings right there some nuances here about parquet versus like the traditional things like csv and whatnot is that parquet is column-based partitioning of how it writes the writes the data set which means they can take advantage of of repeating, say, you know, values of like a numeric index, advantages of like common character strings, advantages of POSIX times, lots of interesting optimizations. We don't have time to get into it all on this podcast, but there are also some references in Collins' post if you want to really dive into that. So yes, we already see writing is significant here. How about reading itself? Now the results aren't quite as drastic. But as you might guess, because of the different way data is organized behind the scenes of these formats, it actually takes on average about 0.3 seconds or 0.4 seconds to read that into memory from Parquet, whereas for RDS, it takes about five-ish, six seconds on average. Now that, if you're doing interactive analysis, may not be a huge deal to you if you're just kind of doing your data reporting and explorations. But what's the space that you and I play with, Mike? Is that, it's a shiny, shiny app. Yeah,
1: it can mean everything.
0: It can mean absolutely everything. And I'm literally dealing with this right now as I speak with an open source project where I don't want to load the entire contents of, in this case, a four million row data set. I want to just grab what I need at the app load and then as needed, add in more. I am using Parquet for that. It is a very optimal solution. And yeah, Mike, you know a thing or two about loading Parquet in the Shiny apps. You wrote a darn article about it, didn't you?
1: Yep, you can find it on the, the Posit blog post. It's a couple years old now. It may need some updating. Uh, but yes, there's a blog post called Shiny and Arrow, a, a match made in high performance uh, computing heaven or something like that. So feel free to, to check that out if you are interested in leveraging Parquet files to make your Shiny apps a little snappier. Absolutely. So you can see that, you know, we don't want to give the cliche, it depends on your use case. But how it
0: concludes, you know, the obvious question is, okay, you as new to this world, which one should you use, Parquet or RDS for your, your next project? Well, as you saw from the metrics, writing, there are just massive gains for writing voluminous data like this taxi data to disk with Parquet. I think that if that's a concern to you and you're doing this on a regular basis, and for efficiency, it does seem like Parquet is a clear winner on that. For reading, importing into your R session, again, I think it depends on the context you're dealing with here. But I do think that, yeah, if you're in a pipeline that needs as much, you know, fast response time, whether that's a Shiny app or other situations, I think Parquet is very attractive for those for those features alone. I Now, one thing to keep in mind, though, is that if you are trying to keep as lean of a stack as possible we were talking about dependencies earlier right well guess what rds is built into r it's been built into r since the very beginning so if you don't want to depend on the arrow package for importing this into your r session that's another you know you know win in for the rds camp if you will and again for smaller data sets rds has had no issues in my shiny app or my other you know data science needs so again it's there it's always there. You can depend on it no matter where you're running R, which version of R, no headaches on that front alone. But I did have an interesting use case for Parquet. I'm going to you know, give a little insider baseball here on this very podcast on my exploration on this at the day job, where our clinical sets are organized in, um, you guessed the SAS data sets organized across many, many, many different directory subdirectory patterns based on the treatment, based on the study name and whatnot, many subdirectories inside, right? Well, we get questions from leadership about kind of, kind of how many sets do we actually have? Or like, how many are SaaS? How many programs do we have in this whole space that are sas based How many are R-based? You know, can we get some metrics around it? So no one's going to do this manually, right? nobody got time for that. So let's see if we can read all this metadata into some form of a data structure so we can interrogate it just like with any database, right? I used to use a bloated, and I do mean bloated, SQLite database to house all this. It worked fine-ish until recently because I had a a silly thing with modification times. I kind of had to re-pivot. So in this repivoting, I thought, well, wait a minute here. Since there's a logical grouping and how these are organized, where it's like the I'll call it treatment ID of the treatment. And then within that, there's an umbrella of different studies or experiments under this. Well, this is right for grouping in a logical way by those two variables. And instead of having everything written into one massive file, why not distribute these as parquet files for the metadata? so that if i know i only need one particular treatment id and one particular study i want to get the data from i can get this just as easily of arrow parquet files as i could with anything else plus if i need to update only a specific treatment id and study combination i don't have to touch the rest of the study and data combination or study and treatment combinations. I can just update that one set and it'll still magically bind all together if I need to later on with the magic of arrow and the the D-ply or dblier packages. It's all right there. So that is saving me immense time. And the parquet files are fast, they're they're in efficient size, and I just feel a lot more organized on how I'm keeping track of all of this. So that was my recent success with Parquet. So yes, your voice was in my head, Mike, as I was in this re-architecting adventure, like, I got to get away from this monolithic set. What can I do here? And Parquet was the answer. I
1: don't want it to sound too cliche, but I am very proud of you, Eric. Great job.
0: Well, as you know, we just scratched the surface here. Every r Weekly issue has a lot more terrific content for you to to learn about the R ecosystem, data science, integrations of R, and many other ways to inspire your daily journeys with data science and of course we have the link to the issue in the show notes but we're going to take a couple minutes for some additional finds here and i want to give a great shout out to a project that just keeps rolling along and had a massive update recently and that is data.table just had a major new release combining with a new governance structure for how they manage the project's life going forward this is a really fascinating post authored by Toby dillon Hawking, And again, we'll link to it in the in the show notes, but a really great kind of roadmap of what they've done to help put a little more governance around the Data.Table project. There's been newer members joining the team, there's been new maintainership, and lots of transparency on what they're looking at as new features going forward. So on top of that new release, it's really a great time if you're, been using data.table and you want to get involved with the project they're making that even more transparent on what the roadmap is and their contribution guidelines and kind of where things are are at going forward so big shout out again to the data.table team they're doing immense work in this space always have tremendous respect for that project and congrats on the release of 1.15.0
1: yes congrats to that team that's that's fantastic news I'm going to reach across the aisle to Bruno and uh, shout out his new blog post called reproducible data science with Nick's part nine. Rix is looking for testers. Uh, so this is a call to action blog post and the R, the Rix package, spelled R-I-X, um, is an R package that leverages Nix, essentially allows you, I believe, to work with uh, Nix in that configuration from R. So if you are interested in Nix for environment and package management, and uh want to kick the tires on his Rick package and give some feedback, I think that would be really greatly appreciated. So check out this blog post uh, for info on how to get started.
0: Yeah, a huge congrats to the Bruno and Philip, the the co-maintainer of Rick's. They have been doing immense work on this over five months and 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 counting according to the blog post. So yeah, getting real world usage of RICS is hugely important as they get to this stable state if you will and, and yeah count me in uh bruno i'm going to be testing the heck out of ricks i've already done initial explorations near the end of last year but i am firmly on board with seeing just how far we can take it and my initial experiences have been quite positive to say the least but yeah i'll definitely put it in some more rigor and call, again shout out to all of you in the community that have been even just remotely curious about this give it a shot Let them know what you think, because I do think in the reproducibility story that this is going to get a lot more traction as we get more users involved. So again, huge, huge congrats to Bruno and Philip on getting close to this major milestone. But of course, he doesn't just want to hear from all of you. We want to hear from all of you too, right? And the best way to get in touch with us, you got a few ways to do it, actually. Um, first of which is there's a contact page directly linked in the episode show notes. If you want to give us a quick shout out on that. Also, if you're on the modern podcast app train, like a few of us are using, say, Podverse, Fountain, Castomatic, many others, Pod Home, whatever have you, there are lots of great ways to get in touch with us on that via the Boost functionality. Again, or from the podcast index directly where this podcast is probably hosted it. you can find details on that in the show notes of the episode as well. And I'm doing some fun projects analyzing the massive amount of literally podcast metadata as we speak. And it's got a lot of geekery behind the scenes with um, Quarto, Point Blank, Docker, GitHub Actions. There's going to be a lot to talk about with this. Um, getting I just uh, conquered GitHub Actions uh, successfully on a automated runtime of these uh, pipelines, which I felt pretty, pretty stoked about because I'm still a bit of a a newer user of GitHub Actions, but I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there, Mike. The the old dog here learns a new trick once in a while. No,
1: nope, that's awesome. I have no doubt that you'll nail that. Uh, GitHub Actions has been definitely a game changer for us at Catchbrook.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where you just can't imagine how you live without it all these years, but it is there and it's a great service, so... And also, if you want to get in touch with us on the uh, social medias, um, I'm mostly on Mastodon these days. My handle is at our podcast, at podcastindex.social. I am sporadically on the Weapon X thingy with at the Rcast and also on LinkedIn uh, from time to time on there. And also a quick reminder, we plugged this a couple of weeks ago, but... The call for talks is still open for the upcoming Absalon Shiny conference. So if you have uh, a talk you'd like to share with the rest of those Shiny enthusiasts out there, um, Mike and I are obviously big fans of, of this conference. Yeah, we'll have a link again to the uh, conference uh, registration and talk uh, submissions in the show notes.
1: And Mike, where can the listeners get a hold of you? Sure, you can find me on LinkedIn by searching Catchbrook Analytics, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K, or you can find me on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org.
0: Very nice, Mike. And um, yeah, um, you know, Mike deserves some extra praise here. You're not going to know this from the polished uh, version you hear of this episode, but he had to put up a lot of shenanigans during our recording today. <laughs>
1: so my thanks to you for putting up with all As that. As if you haven't had to put up with me on other episodes. So we're <laughs> even. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we'll see who, who causes the chaos next time around. But in any event... That's going to wrap episode 151 of our weekly highlights and um, we're so happy to listen to us and we hope you join us for another episode of our weekly highlights next week.